Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are going to go all the way back to the Middle Ages, specifically to Kievan Rus and Olga of Kiev. Olga was married to Igor, who was prince of Kievan Rus, and she gets just the teeniest, tiniest mention in an episode that we did a long time ago on her grandson, Vladimir, Grand Prince of Kiev. That was from right after Holly and I joined this podcast in 2013. And that very, very brief mention, I mean, her name just comes up in a couple of sentences. That's not nearly enough to do her justice Most of what we know about Olga comes from the Russian Primary Chronicle, which is also known as the Chronicle of Nestor or the Tale of Bygone Years. We're going to talk more about that later, but some elements of this story might borrow a little bit more from legend than from history. This involves a very elaborate, gruesome, and incredibly thorough revenge, and then a religious conversion. And uh, just a note that that revenge story is also going to include the kind of gruesome killing of some animals. So everyone brace. I will be bracing with you. Uh, We have a bit of background before we get to Olga and Igor. So Kievan Rus is a term that was coined in the 19th century to describe a loosely organized federation of Eastern Slavic and Finnish tribes with a capital in Kiev. It's named for Kiev and for the Rus people who probably came from Scandinavia and invaded the area around Kiev more than a thousand years ago. According to the Primary Chronicle, the Viking Rurik invaded Kiev in the middle of the 9th century. And then another Viking, Oleg, started consolidating the tribes in the area. Oleg and Rurik might have been related, but that's not 100% clear. And some historians suspect that elements of Rurik's invasion story might be apocryphal. And there is also ongoing debate about exactly where these invaders were from and whether they were Scandinavian at all. Regardless, though, Rus is the origin of the word Russian, and that's why all of this is frequently rolled up under the umbrella of Russian history today, even though the territory involved also includes parts of Ukraine and Belarus today. There were also lots of other tribes in this part of Eastern Europe that were not part of this federation. These tribes were variously at war or allied with the Rus, depending on the time and the circumstance. All of the tribes were ruled by princes, and the prince of Kievan Rus considered himself to be the most important of all of them. Yeah, whether he actually called himself the Grand Prince kind of varied over time, but he considered himself to be the The most most important. Best prince. Yes. (laughs) The economy of Kievan Rus rested on the collection of tribute and then trade, primarily with Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, across the Black Sea. The Kievan prince would collect tribute from all the other princes over the winter, and then in the warmer months, they would take that tribute by boat to trade with Constantinople. Sometimes the tribes paid the tribute at least partly in money, but the tribute also included goods like furs, honey, and wax. Enslaved people were also a major part of the tribute and a huge part of the trading economy of Kievan Rus. The people enslaved included prisoners of war, criminals, people who couldn't pay their debts, and in some cases, people who sold themselves into slavery. And one of the many subjects of ongoing debate in this episode is whether the word slave is actually derived from Slav and grew out of the Rus' enslavement of Slavic peoples. 
This trading relationship with Constantinople came about during Oleg's reign as prince. At about 907, he had gone to war with the Byzantine Empire, who the Rus usually described as Greeks. This war ended in a treaty between Oleg and the Byzantine emperors Leo VI and Alexander, and that established terms for their trading relationship. Under this treaty, the Greeks would provide food, baths, and supplies when the Rus came as merchants, but would provide nothing to Rus who came to the area without goods to sell. A few years later, the Rus and the Greeks negotiated another treaty, one that covered a lot more terms beyond just trade, including what would happen if various crimes were committed against a Greek by a Rus and vice versa. This treaty also established things like ground rules for what to do if ships from one had to go into the territory of the other because of bad weather, and how prisoners and slaves were to be treated. Oleg died in 912, and while his death itself isn't strictly related to today's episode, its account in the Primary Chronicle is just too good to leave it out, because I like it. According to the Primary Chronicle, a prophecy had foretold that Oleg's favorite horse would be the cause of his death. Hoping to keep that from happening, Oleg ordered the horse to be sent out to pasture and to be taken care of very well, but never brought into his presence again. Some years passed, and he started to wonder whatever had happened to that horse. When he asked, he was told that it had died. So he asked to be taken to see its bones. And once he was there, he laughed at the idea that this horse was supposed to have caused his death, and he stepped on its skull. But the problem was there was a snake hiding in there, and the snake bit him, and he died. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Uh, I don't want to vilify snakes. That they, he no, was no. Just, he was just in his snake apartment. He was doing a snake on thing. It. <laughs> yeah. After Oleg's death, Olga's husband, Igor, assumed the throne. And it's possible that Igor may have also been related to Rurik, but it is not completely clear. Igor was born around 877, and Olga was born in an estimated 890. Olga may have been the daughter of a prince, but some sources specifically note that she was of common birth. The Primary Chronicle places her birth at the city of Pskov in what's now Russia. Igor and Olga married in 903, so they had been married for about nine years when Oleg died and Igor assumed the throne. Igor did not have a reputation for being a particularly wise or skilled leader. He did conquer one of those neighboring tribes, the Drevlians, and he imposed a much higher tribute on them than his predecessor had demanded. But he also waged war on the Greeks in an unsuccessful campaign that led to most of his fleet being destroyed by what was described as Greek fire. Igor responded to this defeat by raising an army, rebuilding some of his ships, and trying again, which led to a new treaty with the Byzantine Empire negotiated in 944. But this treaty's terms weren't as favorable to the Rus as Oleg's earlier treaty had been, so this was an overall loss. The treaty did, though, illustrate how Christianity had started to become established in Kievan Rus. Christians were still in the minority, but they were a large enough minority to be specifically addressed in this treaty. Their inclusion also suggests that Igor was at least tolerant of them. Per the treaty, the baptized Rus, or the Christians, acknowledged the treaty by taking an oath in a cathedral, while the unbaptized Rus, or the pagans, swore on their swords. Igor was pagan, so he swore on his sword. 
Kievan Rus also had a significant Jewish population, which wasn't referenced in the signing of the treaty, and there may have been at least some people of other religions as well. A year later, when Igor was out collecting tribute, he demanded even more from the Drevlians than he had previously, which was already more than Oleg had required. And when they resisted, he attacked them. Once he had defeated them and collected their tribute, he sent most of his retinue on ahead, but he turned back with a few of his men, apparently to try to collect still more tribute. At that point, the Devlians killed him along with his escort. Then the Drevlians tried to press their advantage. They sent an envoy to Olga in Kiev to inform her of Igor's death and to seek her hand in marriage for their own prince, who the primary chronicle names as Mao. It wasn't all that uncommon for a ruler's widow to marry the man who had defeated him, but the Drevlian's goal wasn't so much to cement some kind of alliance between Olga and Mao. It was to take custody of Igor and Olga's son, Sevyatslav, who was just a toddler, and groom him to rule in a way that would be the most favorable to them. And just to acknowledge that this chronology is a little odd, Olga and Igor were married in 903. But Sevyatslav's birth is recorded as 942, and the primary chronicle doesn't record any other children from their marriage. This would mean that they had been married for about 39 years before Sevyatslav was born, and that Olga was in her 50s at the youngest, and that Igor was about 65. So that's not impossible, but it does seem kind of improbable. The odds are a little long. Right. There are cases on record of people having children at those ages. Yes, and having surprise babies later in their life, but still. (laughs) You have to do the Venn diagram of calendar math gets awkward the farther and farther back you go in history. (laughs) Yeah, so regardless of that sort of uh, interesting chronology, Olga's response to her husband's assassination, according to this account, was dramatic, and we will get to it after a sponsor break. According to the Primary Chronicle, when the Drevlian delegation arrived in Kiev, they were in a small boat carrying about 20 men. Olga welcomed them, she offered them hospitality, and she told them that she wanted to meet with them in the morning. She said that they should go back to their boat that they had come on and that she would send men to act as an escort the next day. She advised them that to make a good impression, they should carry themselves very proudly, they should basically be arrogant, and then when her retinue came to collect them in the morning, they should refuse to go with them by foot or on horseback and instead demand that they be carried to her still in the boat. I mean, I'm I'm a wary person by nature, so I'm like, if I heard this, I'd be like, you're punking me. Uh, during the night, though, Olga ordered a deep trench to be dug alongside the castle. When her porters carried the Drevlian men to the castle, they dropped them, still in the boat, down in the trench, where Olga had them buried alive. Then Olga sent a message to the Drevlians saying that she would consider that offer of marriage if they sent a delegation of distinguished men to act as her escort. Prince Mal agreed to this and sent what was described as the best men of the Drevlians. When they arrived, Olga said she would receive them after they'd had baths, so they were led into the bathhouse and locked inside, at which point Olga's men set the building on fire. This is maybe when you stop trusting Olga, I'm just saying. (laughs) She did 
make sure that she acted quickly before a word could go back to Mal separately (laughs) of what had been going on. But she wrote again, saying that she was on her way to marry Prince Mal, but that first she needed to have a proper mourning and funeral for her late husband. She asked that the Drevlians prepare large quantities of mead for that purpose. And then she traveled to the site of Igor's death, where the Drevlians had buried him. Once she had mourned for her late husband at his tomb there, Olga set up a funeral feast with her retinue serving the Drevlians who had attended. According to the primary chronicle, the Drevlians had sent a retinue of about 5,000 men. And then Olga's men were very generous in serving the mead that the Drevlians had brewed for this purpose. Once the Drevlians were all drunk, Olga's retinue massacred them. Again, don't, don't trust Olga. I'm not... I'm not judging her actions. I'm just saying don't trust this person. (laughs) (laughs) But she was still not done. She returned to Kiev and raised an army before returning to the Drevlian capital of Eskoristan to lay siege to it. That siege went on for a year. Finally, the Drevlians offered to surrender, saying they would pay tribute of honey and furs if only Olga would just leave them in peace. She finally made what seemed like a generous offer. If they brought her three pigeons and three sparrows from each house, she would, indeed, leave them in peace. But then, when they brought her those pigeons and sparrows, she had her men turn them into living incendiary devices. The primary chronicle describes this as tying small pieces of sulfur wrapped in cloth to each bird. It's probably not straight-up sulfur. It was probably some kind of highly flammable substance that was just described with that term. Maybe something that would have been relatively stable until it was somewhere very warm, like a dovecoat or a chimney. Regardless, all these birds flew back to their nests and caught fire, burning most of the city to the ground as Olga's army rounded up and killed survivors who tried to flee. A few Drevlians were left alive after all of this, and Olga enslaved some of them, and demanded huge tributes from others. We're going to be talking a little bit more about that whole revenge campaign later on when we get into some of the details about the Russian primary chronicle and and how accurate all this may be. But once that massive revenge campaign was over, Olga really seems to have had an efficient and effective uh, time leading Kievan Rus. She served as her son's regent for nearly 19 years, She reportedly did a lot of basically establishing an administrative state to run Kievan Rus efficiently, and this made her the first woman to rule Kievan Rus and the only woman ruler described in the Primary Chronicle. The Primary Chronicle's next check-in with Olga is during a trip to Constantinople, which Slavic peoples refer to as Tsargrad. She met with Byzantine Emperor Constantine VII, son of Emperor Leo VI. This was not Constantine the Great, who lived about 600 years earlier than the events we're describing. This happened sometime around the 950s. According to the Primary Chronicle, Constantine was really impressed with Olga. He noted her intellect and her wisdom and said that she was, quote, very fair of countenance. He also said that she was worthy of ruling at his side, at which point she told him that she was pagan and that if he wanted her to be baptized, he would have to do it himself. He did this, uh, according to the Chronicle, with the help of the Patriarch of Constantinople. And at her baptism, she was christened Helena, reportedly after the mother of Constantine the Great. To quote the Primary Chronicle, quote, When Olga was enlightened, she rejoiced in soul and body. The patriarch who instructed her in the faith said to her, Blessed art thou among the women of Rus, for thou hast loved the light and quit the darkness. 
The sons of Rus shall bless thee to the last generation of thy descendants. From there, Olga began studying with the patriarch, learning all the traditions and values and modes of worship of the Orthodox Church. After the baptism, Constantine proposed to Olga something that seemed like he might have been thinking about earlier in the story when he said that she was worthy of ruling at his side. But she said, quote, How can you marry me after baptizing me and calling me your daughter? For among Christians, that is unlawful, as you yourself must know. In other words, you were my godfather at my baptism just now. What are you even thinking? Constantine answered, Olga, you have outwitted me. He gave her lavish gifts like gold and silks before she went back home to Kiev, promising to send gifts of her own in return once she got there. Olga was pretty savvy, though, as she has been this entire time. Once she got back to Kiev and Constantine wrote to her about his promised gifts, she said that she would send them along once he spent as much time with her in her country as she had spent with him in his. According to accounts from the time, once Olga got back to Kiev, she began destroying pagan idols. But it's not clear whether this was part of an attempt to outlaw pagan worship. She had apparently tolerated Christians while she herself was pagan, and it's possible that she continued to tolerate pagans once she had become Christian, meaning that she was destroying idols to conform with Christian law, not as part of an attempt to drive out all paganism. After her conversion to Christianity, Olga did try to persuade Savyatslav to do the same. He was old enough at that point to make this decision, but not really old enough to rule, He didn't want to be baptized, though. Christians were still really in the minority in Kievan Rus, and he worried that he would lose the respect of his pagan subjects if he converted. Olga's regency ended in 964, when Svyatslav turned 21. He followed in his father's footsteps and embarked on a series of military conquests, although these were much more successful than his father's had been. Although Olga was no longer regent, she continued to run Kiev's administrative state while her son was away at war. Savyatslav was really ambitious. He wanted to unite the Rus and the neighboring Bulgars into one Russo-Bulgarian empire. He conquered an assortment of neighboring peoples along with a series of cities along the Danube River, earning the nickname Savyatslav the Brave. In 968, he captured the city of Periaslavets on the mouth of the Danube River, and he made his home there. Sovyatslav's move to Periaslavets left Kiev relatively vulnerable, though. While he was living in Periaslavets, a semi-nomadic, Turkic-speaking people called Pechenegs attacked Kiev. As they lay siege to the city, Olga tried to protect her grandchildren, who included both of the next princes of Kievan Rus'. The Pechenegs force was large enough that nobody was able to get into or out of Kiev while it was under siege or even really to send any kind of message to Sevyatslav. The besieged city was finally able to send for help when a young man who knew the Turkic language had an idea for a little subterfuge. He sneaked out of the city with a bridle and started asking around if anybody had seen his horse. So the Pechenegs thought he was one of their own force. He was able to kind of work his way through the crowd, searching for his make-believe horse before being noticed. He was able to get away, carrying word of what was happening to Sevyatslav's nearest general. This general was able to relieve the siege of Kiev pretty quickly, and once Sevyatslav heard what had happened, he raised an army to drive the Pechenegs out of the area. 
Once that was done, though, Sevyatslav really wanted to return to the Danube River region. He thought Periaslavets was a lot more strategically located city. It was more central in his newly expanded territory that had better access to trade and luxury goods. His mother got him to promise that he would wait until after her death to go because she didn't want to be separated from him again. She died on July 11th, 969. In the words of the Chronicle, quote, Olga was the precursor of the Christian land, even as the day spring precedes the sun and as the dawn precedes the day. For she shone like the moon by night, and she was radiant among the infidels like a pearl in the mire, since the people were soiled and not yet purified of their sin by holy baptism. But she herself was cleansed by this sacred purification. She put off the sinful garments of the old Adam and was clad in the new Adam, which is Christ. Thus we say to her, rejoice in the Rus's knowledge of God, for we were the first fruits of their reconciliation with him. She was the first from Rus to enter the kingdom of God, and the sons of Rus thus praise her as their leader, for since her death she has interceded with God in their behalf. To close the loop on her story, in 972, Sevyatslav was on the way back to Kiev with a small retinue when he was ambushed by the Pechenegs and killed. He was succeeded by his oldest son, Yaropolk, who was then succeeded by his brother, Vladimir the Great. He's the one that we've talked about in that previous episode, and he was the one who converted Kievan Rus to Christianity. Like we said at the top of the show, it is possible that some elements of Olga's life are a little bit closer to legend than actual fact. And we're going to get into that after we first pause for a little sponsor break. If you read a bunch of articles about Olga of Kiev from different sources today, you can find dramatically different takes on her depending on who is writing. Some of them focus only on her revenge against the Drevlians, while others focus only on her conversion to Christianity, describing her as equal to the apostles and completely leaving out all of that earlier revenge arc. Some focus both on the revenge and the conversion, crediting the conversion to Christianity with transforming Olga from a bloodthirsty pagan into a peaceful Christian. And there are also a few that try to build the case that this revenge was just a total fabrication that has nothing to do with Olga as a Christian figure at all. It's true that there is not a lot of documentation of the revenge campaign outside of the primary chronicle. The Russian primary chronicle is typically attributed to the monk Nestor, although it was probably the compilation of work by multiple people. It's usually cited as having been completed in 1113, so about 150 years or more after all of these events happened. The oldest surviving copy of it is from about 1300, and it's considered to be the most important source of information about the early history of the Eastern Slavs. Olga, like I said earlier, is the only woman ruler described in the Primary Chronicle. She's also the only ruler presented as having this degree of cunning. But that disparity isn't necessarily evidence that this revenge story is a fabrication. Most of the male leaders who are described in the Primary Chronicle are mentioned in terms of their military skill. Sort of their value and aptitude as a, as a leader is tied into their military campaigns. Olga didn't directly participate in military campaigns the way the Rus princes did, 
So this difference in tone might just be because Olga's leadership took a very different form than the men's leadership did. But even though there isn't a lot of corroboration of the revenge story itself, there is information to suggest that something like it could have happened, although perhaps not on such a massive and prolonged scale. There are plenty of other revenge stories from medieval Europe and Asia, both in factual chronicles and in stories and legends. So this one didn't just come out of nowhere. Also, the primary deity among pagans at the time was Perun, god of thunder and lightning, and he's associated with order and right and purification. So some historians argue that Olga's medieval pagan background is right in line with this revenge story and an attempt to put things right to purify the region of Drevlians. The Rus's relationship with the Greeks, on the other hand, is much more documented. Igor and Oleg's treaties with the Greeks are both recorded from the Byzantine Empire's perspective. Olga's visit to Constantinople also appears in Constantine's Book of Ceremonies, which is an extremely detailed book of all the ceremonial protocol at court. When I say extremely detailed, I'm talking 11-page long descriptions of all the decorations at an event and who was there and what they were wearing and where they were all positioned in the room. If you have ever read the book, The Princess Bride, it's basically an entire book of the things that are cut out of it. <laughs> I was going to say it sounded like uh, some of the writing of Gustave Flaubert. <laughs> um Constantine doesn't specifically mention Olga's baptism in the Book of Ceremonies, though, which he wouldn't have if it took place somewhere other than at court. He also calls her by the name Helga, which is the Scandinavian version of Olga. But there are plenty of other references to this baptism in the historical record, including Slavic, Byzantine, and Latin accounts, but they all contradict each other in terms of exactly when and where the baptism happened. Some accounts place the conversion as happening in 954 or 955, but if you line up the dates with the days of the week that appear in Constantine's writing, it was really 957. Some accounts that suggest an earlier date also suggest that it was a local priest named Gregory and not the patriarch of Constantinople who actually performed the baptism. On top of these differing accounts, there are also modern scholars who have tried to piece together a timeline based on other bits of information, like whether Constantine's wife Helen would have been Olga's godmother since her husband was Olga's godfather, and if she was, whether that was why Olga was given the baptismal name of Helen, and if the answer to both of those questions is yes, if that's evidence for an earlier baptism, because Empress Helen was in very poor health for several years before she died, in 962. Some of this analysis suggests that Olga's baptism wasn't connected to her trip at Const to Constantinople at all, that she had been baptized in Kiev years before going there. Some of these accounts speculate that the primary chronicle suggestion that Olga headed off an unwanted marriage proposal by getting the emperor to be her godfather is just a fanciful addition made by the chronicler, and that no such marriage proposal ever really happened. Uh, there is, no exaggeration, a ton of scholarship on this question of when and where Olga was baptized. Tracy <laughs> looked at four different papers exclusively on that subject, uh, one of which references that there had been 11 major studies connected to it, and that particular paper was written 30 years ago, so there are surely even more by now. Yeah, there has been just so much, so much research into exactly when and where was Olga baptized. So, 
basically, we have enough evidence to know that Olga was a real person, that she really was married to Igor, and that she governed the Rus of Kiev as her son's regent, that she traveled to Constantinople at least once, and that she converted to Christianity. Some of the other details are a little fuzzier, and some ar- there are some arguments that Olga's revenge, or at least some elements of it, might be apocryphal, even though they are kind of fun to read about, especially if you're a fan of things like Game of Thrones. <laughs> it is a very Game, game of Thronesy life. She <laughs> Yes. Uh, Olga was canonized in the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, and her feast day is celebrated on July 11th or 24th, depending on where you are. As Olga of Kiev. Oh, Olga. It's always... You seem f- fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is always fun um, when the primary document that we have on somebody is, is like a thing that you can find and read for yourself on the internet uh, that's easily accessible rather rather than having to rely like exclusively on papers referring back to a thing that's buried in in an archive somewhere. I'm not knocking archives at all. They do valuable and important work helping people weed through all of this information. But um, I always like it when when the primary source is a thing that I can go and read all the way through for myself uh, before getting into the article or before getting into the podcast. Yeah. Do you have a little bit of listener mail? I do. I have something from Caitlin. Caitlin says, Hello, Holly and Tracy. I'm listening to your latest episode on Mary Winston Jackson and had to stop to write this note before I even got through the intro. You mentioned the Harvard Observatory and their star plates along with the women tasked with cataloging those self-same stars. In addition to Annie Jump Cannon, a fantastic deaf astronomer, Henrietta Swan-Levitt was also a notable employee. Her work built on the foundation for measuring objects outside of the solar system, which helped prove that there were indeed objects outside the solar system. Edwin Hubble's seminal work used Henrietta's as part of its basis. Had she not died of pancreatic cancer, she would have won the Nobel. And in fact, three years after her death, a mathematician tried to nominate her, thinking she was still living. I write to say this because apart from being the most space-obsessed person I know, I worked on a play about Henry and Annie and their stars. It's called Silent Sky by Lauren Gunderson, and I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a beautiful script, and I've been fortunate enough to work on a beautiful production as well. Anyway, I know you have a billion-mile suggestion list and that you've literally just done a lady astronomer, but maybe Annie or Henry can go on that list. Caitlin, uh... And then she also goes on to say that she particularly likes uh, episodes like The Ghost Army because of her work as a sound designer, which is pretty cool. Thank you so much, Caitlin. That is not a name that I, uh, I came across when I was working on that episode, so I am glad to hear about her. Don't know if she will become an episode because our list is very long, <laughs> but she will definitely go on there. Yeah, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcasts at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also all over social media at Mist in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook and our Twitter and our Instagram and our Pinterest. You can also come to our website, which is MistInHistory.com. You can click on the link at the top of the page that says Paris Trip to find out about the trip that we are taking to Paris in June. You can also find a searchable archive of all the episodes we've ever done and the show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have done together, which will include a link to the Russian Primary Chronicle if you want to go read it for yourself. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, 
and wherever else you get your podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 